1: hello everybody and welcome back to new books in asian american studies a channel of the new books network i am jennifer kyeong lee your host and with me here is Hyung song who will be talking about his book climate lyricism published by duke university press in 2022. in climate lyricism min reads a range of texts to develop a mode of reading for what he calls climate lyricism in doing so he asks us to engage in the practice of bringing careful ongoing attention to the everyday. Everyday practices of reading, everyday practices of conserving water or taking public transportation instead of driving or eating a plant-based diet and everyday experiences of navigating a world where people are treated differently due to racism. By reading for climate in this way, Song helps offer a way of thinking about how we might not only read, but also live together and develop a model of shared agency in the face of something as overwhelming and seemingly outside of our individual control as climate change. Thank you so much for joining me, Min.
0: It's my pleasure, Jennifer.
1: So I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, I'm uh, the Actually, a new chair of the English department of Boston College, uh, where I've taught for over 20 years. Uh, uh, I'm originally from Korea, but my family immigrated to Michigan when I was five years old. And uh, I live there. and went to school there and then and then moved to Boston for grad school and then just kind of stayed put. So it's a pretty dull personal story, I have to say. Uh, I'm just someone who tends to just like to be in one place, I guess. Um, uh, but my research has been pretty wide-ranging. Uh, I, I, this is the third uh, single-author book I've written. And, uh, and I, I have to say, I think of it as a kind of trilogy that I've written. The first book that I wrote was on uh, the 1992 Los Angeles riots or uprising. Um, And that one was really just trying to focus on a very specific event and thinking about how uh, uh, writers and cultural producers of other kind use that event to try to make sense of the role that race Plays in understanding both the present but also the future. Uh, that led me to think uh, more broadly about Asian American literature and and really thinking about the the kind of flowering of Asian American literature that we're experiencing right now. We really seem to be in a kind of golden age, and what effect that has, what kind of pressure that has on on both our understanding of race. And also our 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 ability to try to imagine a future together, and then this final one, uh, the broadest yet, looking at climate and thinking about different modes of attentiveness that might help us to uh, engage with this topic more fully. And in, in all three, what what threads all three books together in my mind um, is is a kind of continuous interest in thinking about the role that race plays in our ability to imagine the future together
1: yeah so I'll start with our usual big question what brought you to this project
0: right, so i've been uh, uh I think I've been interested in climate change uh for as long as I can remember I still distinctly remember being a freshman at the University of Michigan uh, and having a really uh, in-depth conversation with a roommate <laughs> this was uh, I hate to admit it, but this was in uh, nineteen eighty eight uh, and uh we were just coming out of a out of a historically incredibly hot heat wave. Uh, and, and we were talking about climate change back then and, and and really talking about this this issue and the significance it had uh, for our own future and and how little attention it was getting, uh, even though everyone was quite aware. Uh, even back then, the science was, was starting to come into focus pretty sharply. Already, and so it's something I've just been reading about and thinking about for uh, you know for most of my adult life. Uh, But it's as something about the subject that it was also something that I didn't always prioritize. Uh, It was just always there in the back of my mind, but there was always other things that seemed you know, kind of more urgent and and requiring more attention or something that I could have some kind of impact on. So I was always interested in race and racism, and that was always at the center of my research and my, and my thinking. And, and so uh, I, and and there was something also about being a graduate student in the 1990s, just after the uh, uh, after the riots or uprising happened in Los Angeles, that really took up my attention. So when I sat down to write my first book, that one really preoccupied my mind to thinking about how, for a decade, um, uh, creative producers of all kind were trying to make sense of that event uh but but climate change kind of started to take sharper and sharper focus in the last kind of two decades for me and and even um and I wanted to write about it actually after my first book but I just couldn't really figure out how to do it and so I put it aside and wrote um uh, wrote my second book about the about Asian American literature, and there's quite a bit of stuff near the end uh, about the environment and thinking about how Asian American literature engages with with environmental questions. Uh, but even by the end of that second book, I just didn't really know how to do it, like how to make climate change and race work together. I just I couldn't figure out a way to formulate it. So I'd been kind of nibbling around that subject and feeling pretty confused about how to proceed. Uh, uh, Someone I know uh, who knew of my interests uh, asked me to contribute to an edited volume on race and the environment, uh, it was a book called Racial Ecologies that she and another professor was co-editing, uh, and and I was I have to admit a little squirrely. I kind of uh, said, "Yes, this is something I want to do. I don't know how to do it. I'm confused." Uh, and she was great. She really kind of helped me to think about the project. She was very encouraging. She really wanted me to contribute to the volume, and she kept at me, and and it. And and just having that kind of pressure forced me to sit down and say, you know, well, what am I doing here? How am I trying to figure this out? And and so I I eventually came up with a, uh, with with a, a contribution to that volume, and that contribution, uh, was where I first used the term climate lyricism, and and uh, after that, I really continued to think about that 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 phrase I had used uh, and try to try to flesh out what I meant by it. And, and that, that eventually led to the writing of this book.
1: Yeah, that's, that's incredible. I, I think I went into this book kind of knowing your previous work and so not really knowing like to what extent um, kind of your earlier thinking about race would be connected to the way that you think about climate change. And I think one of the things that stood out to me was how, how much it informs your thinking about climate change. Like, I think that connection was made so strongly. It's almost surprising for me to hear that, like, I I guess it's not surprising in that um, you do it so well, but that that is something that you struggled with or that, like, preoccupied you when you were figuring out how to write um, this book. So so thank you for figuring it out. But um, I, I picked up Climate Lyricism, expecting it to be, you know, a book about climate change in poetry. And it is about that, but it's also about, um, and these things are connected. So I wouldn't say it's like separately about this, but it's about the practice of sustained attention that's cultivated through literary study and more broadly humanist work in particular. And I thought that was kind of remarkable at this time when solutions to climate change are often thought of in terms of scientific advancement, rather than perhaps tied to humanist thinking. And so, and and this is a big question that I think you address in so many ways that I, I won't say like address it in all the ways you do in the book, but in whatever way feels most appropriate to you right now, like, could you tell us more about this idea of climate lyricism and how it connects the rather everyday practice of reading to this seemingly huge task of comprehending how we might think about and respond to climate change?
0: One of the things I was trying to figure out, and and what made this writing this book such a challenge for me, was was really the question of what does the humanities have to offer? Uh, a subject that, understandably, uh, has been the province of the natural sciences and more recently the social sciences. Uh, uh, you know, the science is clearly important. And in, in, in sort of making sense of what's happening, what the processes are, uh, and also just as important, what are the most effective ways in which, uh, you know, human activity can, uh, can have an impact on these processes that's uh, shaping our lives so profoundly. Uh, the social sciences have become increasingly important because it's clear that it's not a lack of technical ability that prevents us from uh, curtailing uh, the most destructive elements of what we know is coming, uh, but that it, it, it's really a lack of political will uh, and, and, um, and the unwillingness really to engage um, in good faith with the necessary kind of policy changes uh, that we know is required. Uh, there are lots of ways to get at the solutions we need, uh, but, but there's no way to do it if the political will is lacking. And so, you know, focusing on policy, thinking about social processes, Thinking about, uh, uh, especially about the role that topics like race and gender and sexuality and how those things might also impact, but also thinking about, you know, policies that shape uh, infrastructure and uh, energy use and so on and so forth. You know, so it makes sense that the natural sciences and the social sciences would be so deeply engaged in this. And it's not clear, I don't think, still to a lot of people, well, what does the humanities have to offer? And I think, you know, the humanities are a large part of our interest is on the on on the cultural end of things. You know, uh, how does kind of deeper ideas about the human, about our relationship to each other, um, shape uh, you know the way we see the world? And it seemed to me that a- any contribution the humanities would make to this discussion really had to think about our culture and about the kind of deep and often uninterrogated assumptions that shape our understanding of the world and our understanding of our relationship to each other. Uh, how do we make sense of the kind of cultural assumptions shaping our responses to climate change? And I think just as urgently, what kind of impact can we have on those assumptions? You know, is it really possible for us to, uh, shift cultural assumptions because of the urgency and the scope of the challenges we're facing when it comes to climate change. So that that, that was the big question I was having. Uh, and that's what led me to uh, think about the importance of sustaining attention. And, and it's really these questions that led me to poetry. Uh, it, it's, it's funny, you know, that you mentioned uh, that um, the book kind of defies some assumptions, because if you see the title Climate Lyricism, understandably, you might think it's a book about climate change and poetry. But I'm a bit of an outsider when it comes to the study of poetry. It's not something I specialized in. And uh, and it's always something I struggled with uh, in grad school and beyond, uh, that there, there, there's always something a little forbidding about the study of poetry, I think. And partly there's, there's, there's kind of a long history of gatekeeping too in the community, or at least that's my sense of it. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and there's a lot of hesitation. I, I sense it among students and other colleagues and fellow scholars around the study of poetry, because I think it does suffer some kind of reputation problem. <laughs> But uh, so I'm a bit of an outsider to it, and and it and I've came to the discussion about the lyric and lyricism pretty late, and and I had to spend a lot of time just trying to catch up to the to a very immense conversation around that subject, and so. One thing, though, that being an outsider gave me an advantage of is that I wasn't really wedded to any particular definition of lyricism, and I wasn't wedded to any particular like school of thought about the subject. And my understanding of it really was pretty broad and big, and I did not limit myself to thinking of it as just a mode of poetic expression. And that's partly why the book, uh, while it's... Uh, really invested in in reading lots of I think terrific contemporary poetry is also so far wide-ranging so I'm not I don't feel a, a book on lyricism necessarily needs to limit itself to just poetry or to poetry I don't mean to say just
1: yeah I love that about your book like you read such a range of texts I think that surprised me to an extent um Oh yeah, it's nice to hear that. Um so in, in your chapter what is denial? You tell us that denial of climate change is more than just a literal refusal to accept well documented facts. It's a refusal to admit these facts candidly and to think through their implications as far as they will go. And as an example of this kind of denial you discuss Japanese incarceration during World War II. And so I was wondering if you could tell us about this connection you draw between climate denial and the denial of histories of racial violence.
0: Yeah, um, I would say first that even though it's not self-evident, the, the, the book really grows out of my own immersion in Asian American studies and more broadly in the study of ethnicity and race, where for a very long time we've insisted on the importance of foregrounding questions about race and ethnicity, uh, often to a public that was strongly resistant to that approach. There is always this sense of like swimming against the tide, if you will. And, and I think that that those trends are still very pronounced today. And indeed every time there's a kind of success in breaking into public discourse around these topics, there's also a kind of backlash against it and a strong unwillingness, uh, sometimes violent unwillingness to speak about the significance of these issues. Um, and and that is often how I understood denial as working. So you know, I spent a lot of time reading about the the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, uh, and 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 all that follows. And and it's really remarkable if you read some of the very personal accounts written by Japanese Americans after World War II. Uh, there, there's just this really interesting way in which, uh, you know, beyond the people who say that never happened, which certainly there are people who say that even today, there are, uh, there's a way in which you can recognize it and not recognize it at the same time. So one, I think, really great example of this is Monica Sone's memoir, Nisei Daughter, which was quite popular at the time. When it came out, uh, and it's really a a story about her immigrant family in Japan. There's a kind of they face some kind of you know some everyday discrimination for being Japanese, but they're also a happy family. There's something kind of bucolic about her early childhood, despite the adversities they face. Uh, and then the war happens, they're evacuated, uh, and then the war ends and they kind of pick up their lives and, and continue to uh, face adversity together as a happy family. What's really remarkable in the, in the arc of that story is that uh, its account of, uh, of being mass incarcerated occurs in the second half of a short chapter and <laughs> and if you read the book without really understanding you know that at the center is a firsthand account of the experience of mass evacuation you could easily read that book and not be aware of that historical phenomena yeah. at all so the book does this kind of incredible trick where it both acknowledges and ignores <laughs> this really important historical event. Uh, and, and that seems to me a, a really useful model for thinking about the complexities of denial. So, yes, there's one level of denial uh, where, where, you, where you hear still today people saying climate change isn't real, it's not caused by humans, um, so on and so forth. So, so there's that literal level of denial. But then I think there are other levels of denial, uh, like a refusal to speak candidly about it. So you might recognize every fact about climate change, but without ever using the phrase or really connecting it to the larger, uh, you know, to the larger. Uh, So it it really depends on the kind of interpretive frame you're bringing to the subject and how you understand it. Uh, And there are definitely ways in which you can talk about climate change and completely minimize the significance or distort uh, what is happening. And then you could also get to the point where you are really speaking candidly about climate change and all that is happening, but then you fail to make the kind of logical to draw the logical conclusions to really follow through on the implications of what's happening. And I think, A lot of the times, many of us are are actually engaged in the second and third level of denial. Maybe sometimes when we're talking to friends and we're saying, you know, hey, it's really weird that it's January in Boston and it's 55 degrees and I see students wearing shorts, right? Isn't this nice? Uh, And you might mention all those facts without everyone saying, you know, this is... um, you know there's something you know that this is also fundamentally uh, an alteration in the uh, in the seasons due to human industrial activity right yeah it's, it's that, just that a little concerning time right it's like oh this is so this is so weird you know or how unsettling uh but i'm gonna just go hang out with my friends and enjoy the warm weather so that that's you know a common level of denial i think which a lot of us are engaged in uh, the other is you know like you could even say with your friend hey this really sucks it's clearly climate change at work you know uh, i i feel so sad so frustrated by all of this um and then that's the end of the conversation, and there's no no sense of like you know well what what's the implication of that kind of frank acknowledgement, and, and you know like doesn't that call for us all of us to start really thinking in really concrete ways? What does it mean for our lives? How do we have to change the way we live our lives? And that's a really hard conversation to have on so many levels because we are talking about then we're talking uh, uh, about first, disrupting familiar patterns of life, familiar habits, you know, Uh, you and your friends might be planning a a spring vacation to the Bahamas, for instance. And if you are really serious about thinking about climate change, you would have to have a conversation about the impact of that trip. Like, does that really make sense? Uh, You know, do you, you know, maybe it'd be better to go more locally or something else? So there's that kind of conversation where you're really, you know, being asked to change a concrete thing about the way you live your life and maybe deprive yourself of something you want to do. And then there's also, you know, but then there's also the scale issue, which I think is also really complicated because it ultimately doesn't matter that much if you and your friends went to the Caribbean for spring vacation. It's just a drop in the bucket of a much larger Issue and and how do we how do we address that kind of big picture issue? What's the relationship between the way you live your life on a day to day basis and the big structural changes? Uh, we all understand at some point that we need to change, and if we don't understand it, then we are definitely you know in in that kind of implicatory denial.
1: Yeah. So I think, relatedly but perhaps drawing all these things you're saying back to the question of of the lyric, um, you go on to talk about how Claudia Rankine uses the lyric to pay attention to these often unexamined moments of racial conflict, um, such as things like what some people have called microaggressions. And so I, I was wondering if you could tell us about that reading and how it's connected to how we might think of the usefulness of the lyric in particular as a form for thinking about climate change.
0: So I, I have to make an admission here that one of the criteria I used for which text to really focus on uh, was really, you know, did I like that work? And, and so there was just some stuff I read that I just kind of really loved and wanted to write about. <laughs> Claudia Rankine's Citizen is definitely one of those books that I just, just adore.
1: I love that yes. there's a part in your book where you say, like, oh, like, I admit I chose this text because, like, it had Asian American characters or something. And I was like, wow, I need to text this to someone. I love this line. So, yeah, I I don't know. I, I love the way you talk about choosing texts in your book as well. And I'm, I'm glad you're bringing that up um in terms of, like. Enjoying a text as a reason for for writing about it here, but yeah, continue.
0: <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, with- I mean, I, I don't want, I don't want to spend my time writing about books I I don't enjoy reading or I don't I don't find engrossing. And there's just some books that you know really demand your attention. I think Citizen is one of them. It's just a, a, an extraordinary book, and and Rankin, you know, it's just such an extraordinary talent. And there's this voice and this address that just you know it screams lyric to me. And the fact that it says American lyric in the subtitle <laughs> is maybe a giveaway, but you know, there's some critics who say, well, it's not really the lyric because it doesn't have X, Y, or Z. It's not properly poetic. And I, I tend to think that that's a really narrow definition of what the lyric is and the very kind of, you know, definition I, I refuse to use. So, uh, so what I love about that book is, uh, it's, um, it's use of the second person address that the reader is uh, forced into a kind of intimacy with the speaker that implicates everyone involved in what, what, what the speaker is documenting in such painful and minute detail. And, and it forces then a kind of reckoning with the audience about what is happening and their connection to it you know like not that we aren't just observers but we are part of this you know, uh, engaged in these kinds of moments. There's a story she tells. Um, some of the stories she tells are not things that happened to her, uh, but that happened to people she knew. So one of the really famous stories is of, a of, a of an African American woman who's going to someone's house, uh, because that's where her therapist lives and the therapist, um, you know, runs her office out of the house, which is not that unusual. And she goes into the, you know, she goes to the house to meet with her appointment and the the therapist sees a black woman approaching her house. And she says, you know, what are you doing here? You know uh, you know, it's really suspicious and, uh, and, 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 and hostile to her presence, and she's like, well, "I'm your new patient." And then she says, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so 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 sorry." And um, the way she renders that moment, uh, that way that Rankine renders that moment, is so both so crystalline uh, and so painful because you know, especially that use of the "u" and 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 also the whole sense of the "so so sorry" that sibilant s sound. Just, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it just resonated in my mind for days. Every time I read it, it just kind of, I just kind of <laughs> go around hearing those words and thinking about that moment uh, and, and, um, and, and ask us to really, you know, not to pass by such a moment, but to sit with it and interrogate it and, and struggle with the complexities of what's happening there. You know, there isn't necessarily ill intent on the part of the therapist, and the therapist is probably feeling deep, deep shame. But there's also something uh, about being microgressed in that way as well. This is a little bit hard to talk about, I think, for most people and for myself, certainly. But I often find in situations uh, where race certainly flares into view on a kind of day-to-day basis, and it, and it's often directed against me this this desire on my own part to try to shield the person who committed the microaggression from themselves, like to, to somehow protect them somehow from what they've done. I don't know what the psychologist is. I'm not a psychologist, so I couldn't explain to you the intricacies of that. But there's this sort of funny kind of interpersonal dynamic that's quite complex uh, and, and, and I think that Rankine captures some of the complexities of that dynamism and also captures the complexities of our social encounters on everyday basis when difficult subjects flare into view and some of our assumptions that we might keep hidden suddenly become visible. And, and it's that kind of attentiveness to the everyday and and, to, and its insistence that the everyday is not a place of comfort or safety or security, but is often a place that is fraught with tension and discipline and surveillance and, and so on, which I think for many... Uh, minorities and non-white people you know that that's an understanding of the everyday that they've had to contend with for most of their lives because you never know you know when you meet someone new uh, or or even people you know if if something terrible is going to be said or you know something awful is going to happen you just don't know uh, and, and I think the book is asking us then to redefine our understanding of what the everyday is away from its sense of its associations with regularity, ordinariness, familiarity, but rather as a place of potential rupture, of conflict, uh, of tension. Uh, and, and that's the view of the everyday that I think an attentiveness to climate change also requires.
1: Yeah, there's there's this line in the next chapter I love that I think is about exactly what you're talking about right now where you say it's also important to feel overwhelmed and to dwell on such a feeling so as to appreciate the enormity of what is happening because only in this way can everyday denial give way to everyday attention. Um, And yeah, I think you you captured that perfectly. Um, So something I really appreciated when I was reading climate lyricism is that it made me think a lot about how my own thinking about climate change has changed during um especially compared to you compared to you during my very very fairly short lifetime um so when I was younger I occasionally would hear adults talking about it as like a distant thing um I remember when I asked I think I was like really young like early elementary school I asked my dad what like global warming is and he described it as something that was beyond my lifetime but clearly in even just the past few years it's become so clear that like climate catastrophe is happening right now um and for me like i'm i'm 23 right now so i'm really just figuring out like how to live as an a, like autonomous adult human being and one of the things your book does is is you ask this question of how should i live and you talk about all these everyday things that one can do to sustain everyday attention to climate change even when these everyday actions are as you described like just a drop in the bucket they are not going to you know totally stop or change climate change so i was wondering if you could tell us more about this like how should we live and how are our everyday choices related to how we might read the lyric to understand and continuously think about climate change Hmm.
0: that's such a challenging question um (sighs) One of the things I think we need to acknowledge candidly, if we are to maybe engage in what I call everyday—I uh, forget the everyday attention—is—is is that uh, we cannot live our lives the way we have been living our lives. Now, the problem we face is business as usual. So the, so the ordinariness of our everyday lives is what contributes to the exacerbation of the problem we are faced with. So we're reaching a point, I think, where we really have to ask ourselves, how do we live differently? And whether or not you agree that climate change is happening or think it's a problem, it, it almost doesn't matter, actually, ultimately, because these changes are happening and it's gonna force us to change our lives. And we are seeing it actually in real time happening all around us and at a pace that I think is truly terrifying. Uh, If you just think back to the last few years, not only do you have the pandemic, You have uh, political turmoil. Uh, You know, the uh, January 6th hearings are happening right now. You've got a really divided electorate. Uh, You have all sorts of moral panics around critical race theory, uh, as well as transgender people, as well as uh, a kind of backlash against gay, lesbian, um, bisexual people. You also have... um, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, a lot of other issues, I, I think. And then, and then you've also got these mass shootings. And, and the list just goes on and on and on, right? And we also have like hyperinflation and, and yeah, it goes on. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to dwell on this, but I just wanted to capture the, the yeah. enormity of everything that we're faced with. And they can all seem like so disconnected, but I don't think they are. I think these are all examples of, you know, the changes that are finally here at our doorstep. That there are connections, deep connections, that, uh, you know, explain why they're all happening now. <laughs> you know, it, we're like having these proxy debates about how we should live our lives because, the, you know, at, at its root is really the recognition that. Uh, ecological crises are forcing us to change the way we live our lives. And some people don't want to change and some people don't want to share, which is what they might have to do, right? Uh, think, think about the kind of uh, the kind of like intense political pressure that's being put on the U.S. border right now and how border security is like such a big issue, especially for people on the right and people who are from those parts of the world. Or that part of the country in the region in the southwest, um, and and I think some of that anxiety is is really an example of uh, of climate action. Actually, that, they, that what's mo- one of the things that's motivating that desire to secure the border and to strengthen those boundaries is the sense that people we don't want people to come to the U S and share our resources and more and more might as their own, as environmental crises drive them away. And, you know, and there's a sense in which, you know, we, we've got to secure our border so that we can, you know, better enjoy what we have left. (laughs) I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, But that is also a kind of response to climate change, right? So it's happening all around us. And I think it's so much better for us not to just let those kinds of reactions happen and let the proxy debates play themselves out, though it's often hard not to just dwell on those things because they have Mm -hmm. a kind of urgency. Uh, But it's also, I think, really helpful for us to have really candid discussions amongst ourselves about, well, you know, we know that our way of life has to change. How do we want it to change is the question we've got to struggle with. And and I think the more candidly we can have that question, the more we're the less we're stuck in a kind of reactive mode to things that are happening, crises that are happening, and the more we might be able to do some planning about how differently we want to live our lives. That sounded a little preachy, but <laughs> I hope that made sense.
1: Yeah, I I love that. Um, yeah, you. And I think your book does this really well as well as think about how climate change is actually tied to like everything else that is going on. And so I think very early on in our conversation, you talked about um, how with your previous work and like especially when you were writing your first book, it seemed like there were more urgent questions perhaps than climate change. And now you're talking about how like kind of all these other questions about race and you know, all the things you talked about, like our also tied to thinking about climate, like we can't separate um, these things. And okay, perhaps this next question is is related to that. Maybe it's not, but um, getting back to the question of why poetry or the lyric is especially useful for thinking about climate, I was wondering if you could tell us about the properties of climate change that make it so difficult to depict using things like narrative or plot. Like what, what is different about lyric that allows us to see something about climate change that one might not be able to see in maybe a novel.
0: Right. So I think of the lyric, it's, it's very specific properties that I'm attracted to. One is uh, it's, it's careful attentiveness to language that, uh, encourages, uh, also, a, a, a very careful attentiveness to specific moments, you know, uh, there there's a kind of focus on the present and a present that is populated, uh, by a, by a kind of intimate relationship between the speaker and the person who's addressed. There's, there, 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 there is a kind of implicit dialogue, a kind of questioning, well, what do we have in relationship? You know, what do we have in common here? What, what kind of relationship do we have? Or even if it's an antagonistic one, right? We're, we're somehow co-implicated in, in a kind of, um, in, in a moment of kind of heightened attention. And, and that seems to me to really try to capture, you know, um, what it is that we're trying to dwell on at the moment, the present, and how, how, do we, well, how do we embody the moment that we're in right now make sense of all the things that are happening when, when there's so many things that are happening and their connections are so hard to, to disentangle and, and connect. The, the issues I have with, with narrative uh, and, and in some ways some of my frustrations with a lot of the novels I've read that try to take on environmental themes or tackle climate change is that we're in the middle of the story and, and so it's really hard to read novels you know, that are so focused on an ending, right? We don't know how the story ends. And, and the challenges we are faced with is really trying to figure out how to embody uh, or how to inhabit a present where anything seems to be able to happen, right? There's so many pathways before us, and what we do now has such profound repercussions about which pathways remain viable and which pathways people will eventually take. So the need to dwell on the present, to try to make sense of the dynamics that are shaping the now seems to me a much urgent task than, uh, than the kind of focus the narratives have on endings and on trying to capture the shape. Because the danger of that, too, is that it can lead us to think of pathways before us as already foreclosed. You know, it can lead to a sense that, uh, you know, that the outcome is inevitable Uh, and that what we do now has little relevance to that outcome. And I want to insist that that is both wrong and dangerous. Because that leads to a, a feeling of agencylessness. <laughs> Sorry, that didn't come out right. <laughs> Just a sense of powerlessness on our part, that we lack agency to affect the world around us. When I think the exact opposite is true, that actually so much of what we do now is going to shape... Uh, the pathways we find ourselves on, and that the, that we are really in a very unique moment where there's so many pathways before us, and it's so critical for us to think deliberately about which pathways we are going to try to get on. And and so, there is a, a, the the sense of of an ending, the sense of fatalism that suffuses uh, discussions about climate change. Uh, is both self-fulfilling and ultimately conservative in the sense small c conservative in the sense that it gives us cover to just continue to do what we're doing and not have to have the difficult conversations about how we could do things differently
1: yeah thank you um, so so Min, your book has been of real interest to people so I have a question for you from a listener um This listener is a computer scientist by profession who outside of her work as a researcher also writes poetry about climate and the ocean. And so first she wanted to say she really enjoyed your book and found it accessible and engaging as someone who doesn't read academic literary criticism at all. And her question is in climate lyricism, you devote a lot of attention to developing the practice of reading for climate. But as a writer, she's wondering, What about the practice of writing for climate? What can writers do, especially those interested in writing about climate in the face of climate change?
0: Well, what a great question. First, I want to just say I love the fact that people who aren't academics are reading my book uh, and finding it readable and enjoyable and, and worthwhile. I did make a great effort when I was working on the book to write it in a style that I hoped would be accessible to readers outside of academia. Um, part of the way I wrote the book is also the, is also the way I wrote the book is also part of the argument I'm making because I was trying as well to develop a kind of lyrical mode of writing and attentiveness. And, um, and so it's really gratifying to hear that, that it's found an audience like that and and i think the question is so it's such an important one and i keep thinking about it because you know i think this question about writing and storytelling is such an important one because there's so much pressure now on people who are doing what what um what your friend is doing who's writing poetry and writing novels and and writing screenplays and teleplays and and just communicating in multiple ways with with the audience there's um there's a very asymmetrical playing field right now. There's enormous amounts of money invested in uh, distorting uh, what is said and what can be said about climate change, distorting the kind of stories that we hear. Uh, and the response to that often can be pretty exaggerated. And, um, and, it, and, it, and it, it leads then uh, or contributes to also this feeling of fatalism, that the pathways are baked in and there's not much we can do to change that. So I think what we desperately need from writers is, first, writers to write about this subject, but second, to do the hard work of imagining what it means to live with climate change, right? What does it mean once we've frankly acknowledged that it exists? How do we live with it? What kind of worlds are possible? What pathways exist beyond just the most apocalyptic ones? right where humans are actually not the enemies of habitability or nature but are are you know are are contributing uh, to a nurturing of a habitable world those are the kinds of stories we do not have much of right now and those are the kind of visions that we don't have much of. And a language, we don't have much of a language even to talk about these kinds of things. Uh, and and so, you know, I spent a lot of my time actually just reading uh, books and poems and also a lot of bad TV and films uh, you know that try to in some way depict how people have responded or are responding to environmental crises of various kinds how did they respond to it you know what kind of what kind of worlds were they able to wrestle out of such dire situations and um, uh, and, and and one of the things I've noticed that seems to work well, and, and I'd love to also say that this is still <laughs> a very tentative thought on my part, so I may, I may walk it back or revise it later. But one thing I've noticed is that some of the storytelling I've found work, that work really well are the stories that don't begin necessarily by, by, by making climate change the center of their attention. But rather weave that into a larger pattern of of you know character development and conflict and and so on so that this, so that it's not always at the center of the narrative but it's really like but it's a part of people's lives and it's forces people to make choices and to to make connections and uh you know and um, uh, and, and it may grow gradually more important as a, such a story goes on. But, you know, it's it it happens um, in connection to what's happening at this, you know, with, with these other things so that we understand that it's part of a much richer, more complex web of human experience, uh, you know, and that all of us experience climate change not as a singular predominant issue, but as maybe a Uh, an increasingly ubiquitous feature of the background of the situation we find ourselves living our lives, uh, where some things will take precedent and, and attention, but even those things, right? Like if, if it's a story about like a, you know a relationship you're having with someone else, uh, and that's the center of your story. Uh, you know, climate change becomes a factor in how you deal with the interpersonal problems you're facing. Right? If you if it's a story about someone who lives far away, for instance, and you're trying to struggle to maintain a long distance relationship. Uh, that's at the center of the story, right? How do you how do you allow that kind of loving relationship to endure despite kind of physical distance, and 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 then climate change just kind of is another complexity to that problem, right? And you can see characters then really struggling with like, you know, what does it mean for me to have to travel by plane all the time to see my partner when I know that traveling by plane is one of the worst things I can do for the climate and, you know, so you could see how that that's a different kind of story, right? That's a kind of living with climate change where it becomes such a a, a, a salient factor in the playing out of these kinds of issues and dilemmas, but isn't, you know, at the center, you know, the, these people aren't trying to solve climate change per se. They're trying to solve an interpersonal problem of which climate change is an element.
1: Yeah. You have so many ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and I was almost, I'm also kind of surprised that um, like a lot of your suggestions are in terms of um, like narrative and plot as opposed to lyric perhaps. Um, but yeah, I so I guess to kind of again come to this question of um, what we as readers and writers and people can do in the face of climate change, I, I was wondering if you could tell us about your reading of the afterlife. Um, something I really appreciated just personally because I, I come from a comparative literature background was you're bringing together a reading of Kong's Human Acts with thinking about violence against Black people in the United States. And so I was wondering if you could tell us about limits and the helpfulness of ideas of universality alongside what you call shared agency.
0: Yeah. I I, I realized that I did answer that last question by focusing a lot on plot and narrative and character. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> And, then, and that's that's wholly a product of the fact that I spend a lot of my time watching really bad TV. And so I'm always like thinking about it. And there's something about watching bad TV where you can see both like, oh, they're just so good at like getting you to care about these characters and what's happening to them. And also like if you stop at all to think about the plot it just all falls apart it's so dumb you know Uh, like it just it (laughs) doesn't they you know they they clearly have certain kind of plot outcomes in mind and then they have to like twist themselves into a pretzel to make it happen you know crazy coincidences and so on and so forth so that's that's why that's why i was thinking about that it's a (laughs) a it's a it's a it's a outgrowth of my (laughs) own bad bad taste in entertainment so, uh, so the question you asked was about uh, the afterlife, the, the, the latter chapter, uh, uh, which is a chapter I, I really actually, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book, because I've allowed myself after, after like, you know, the kind of careful attention to um, a, a series of texts that's highly disciplined, I gave myself permission in that, that chapter to, to really kind of let loose and, and try to make lots of associations you know yeah. that range widely I wanted to get past I think what is often the case in our imagination which is that we are surprisingly narrowly confined to whatever nation states we happen to live in um, if you ever do any traveling internationally you'll actually see the strength of that in fact I think it's really profound in a way that you are not always aware of um, uh, you know if you like open up your computer in another country, one of the things you'll see, you know, and you, you log on to your, your you know, different uh, news sites is that the news changes. <laughs> like somehow the computer knows that you've moved to another country and the news is different. Sometimes it's in a different language. It sort of like ha- goes into a different default mode, right? Uh, a lot of these international websites have different uh, uh, front-pacing um, Splash pages, uh, depending on the country you're in, and suddenly the cast of characters change. Who are the political leaders they care about? What kind of stories they care about, and so on and so forth. It's dramatic. uh, How much of an effect, uh, you know, what nation we are in, uh, you know, uh, the kind of concerns we have, and the kind of parameters that are placed around the imagination by nation state. So I wanted to try to write a chapter that that kind of resisted that restriction by really ranging freely and widely. I just remember very keenly that one day where I was thinking, um, you know, uh, uh, I had just written, I just had read human acts and I was really thinking about its depiction of the afterlife. And then I was thinking about other depictions of the afterlife. And I was like really struck, especially um, uh, with uh, uh, Lincoln at the Bardo and Elizabeth Costello, which I had, well, Elizabeth Costello is a book I really love, and I've read that several times. And then I had just read Lincoln and the and then Human Acts. And I was really struck by the fact that. All three have really strong international, all three authors have really strong international reputations that their books travel widely. That They were all interested in roughly in this idea of like trying to depict the afterlife. What does it mean to, you know, what happens to us after we die? And so I was kind of curious to just follow that thread and see where that would take me. Uh, and, and, I, and when I got to uh, Han Gong's n- novel, Uh, that's really where I I noticed that her depiction of the afterlife was quite different actually from Elizabeth Costello or uh, Lincoln at the Bardo and, and her depiction of the afterlife in human acts, which is still so painfully wedded to the dead body where the spirit is just kind of hovering over a decaying corpse uh, and that the rest of the book really then follows not so much the ghost, but the people who live. So the afterlife wasn't necessarily about the the life of the person who died and and it's spiritual into a kind of spiritual realm, but really the lives of the people who live and have to live with the consequences of those deaths. And, and it was that kind of... Reorientation that uh, I found uh, really then allowed me to travel so broadly to think about you know the treatment of the dead body in uh, in a lot of in a lot of police shootings that have gotten so much news and attention in the U.S. Uh, many of those cases involve bodies that are allowed to just sit on the that are just allowed to sort of lie on the ground and, and decay uh, for. Long periods of time before the um, before the forensics and police and so on come to remove it. Uh, it it made me also think about the absent bodies, uh, you know, along the border, uh, uh, which interestingly is also uh connected to a greek play antigone a famous greek play about the treatment of dead bodies and and of the kind of responsibilities humans have for the treatment of the dead in their physical form and it also led me to this um i, I think this is a really great book uh set in syria during it, in present day syria set in its um sit in in its civil war, uh, where his author, um, Khalifa, who uh, uh, remains in Syria, refused to leave, uh, kind of writes a story about an older man who dies and his children are burdened with with his request that his body be buried, uh, you know, in a really inconvenient place. In the midst of, so they have to travel with this dead body across the, this war torn country, uh, to to bury him. And all of these past things happen, and and the body gets grotesque, It's hot, and you know, and and it's a long time, and the, and the body is kind of decaying, and so on and so forth. And uh, and and the kids are all just really struggling with the question of how do they live their lives now in the in the midst of all this turmoil. And I just it was really striking to me that across these different places, you know from Korea to the US to Mexico to Syria, the, the topic of the afterlife and its focus on, on you know, the lives of the people who are left living after death um, that there was a theme that ran through them. A profound and important theme that ran through them, a, that cut across race, ethnicity, and nation, and geography. And I found that to be just so moving, right? And 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 and, and in particular, the novel that's set in Syria. I, I found I found that really moving because it, it's depiction of the father's life, the, the person who dies, uh, where where he's. Um, where the, where the civil war kind of enlivens him, even, even at death, even though he knows that his, that his time is coming to an end, uh, he's kind of suffused with energy. He's committed to, you know, um, uh, uh, the war effort and, um, uh, and committed to helping out best he can, uh, to try to bring about a kind of democratic government, uh, even though he also senses that, that that there's a good chance that those efforts are going to fail. Nevertheless, he's just full of energy and agency and purpose. And that seems to me, you know, the very kind of relationship to the presence that we all could benefit from cultivating.
1: Yeah. Thank you. So as before we wrap up discussion of of this book in particular, um, I was wondering if you could tell us about two last things. I think one of them you've already touched on, and perhaps the other will illuminate the two because I, I think they're linked. So, why did you decide to use the second person address you in this book, and like the first person I? And second, how? And this is the part I think you've started answering already in many ways. Um, how as people might you and I and others relate to each other in a time of not only climate change, but other overlapping forms of racial and societal and institutionalized violence that are are co-occurring with climate change.
0: Yeah. So uh, as I explained in the book, the reason why I use a second person address is because it's, it, it, uh, it emulates uh, a, you know, the kind of apostrophe that's at the base of a lot of lyric poetry. And it allows a kind of intimacy, but also kind of questioning about what is that relationship between you and me? You know, there's a kind of space that the second person opens up, even as it's also inviting. So there's a, there's a kind of uh, drawing together and pulling apart that the use of the second person enables, I think. The other thing I, I really liked about using the second person is that it allowed me to avoid using "we," and that seemed to me very important because uh, that that first person plural pronoun gets used so often in discussions about climate change, and it's sometimes so frustrating, you know, because it's it 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 it, it excludes. As much as it includes, you know, who is the referent for the we in in those discussions? I don't know a lot of the times, or or I think, you know, it's really deliberately excluding, right? Uh, If someone says, you know, we are all responsible for climate change because we produce, you know, carbon pollution, that would ignore the fact that some people are just simply much, much more responsible than other people. You know, and, uh, and, and so I, I just wanted to avoid the flattening effect of the first person plural. Uh, and, and, to, and so the use of the second person also then felt to me like a question that uh, kind of echoes throughout all the pages of the book about who the we is. What possibilities do we have for a we? Then maybe this gets to the second question you're having. If I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a question about what possibilities we have of finding connection with each other when there's so many things keeping us apart.
1: That That's a rewording of it, but <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah. Um, it's something I've given a lot of thought to. You know, like, let's talk about, let's think about race in particular. It's... Uh, a mistake to try to flatten out the experiences people have by race. We can't. We can't ignore those divisions. We really can't. Uh, I think uh, any attempt to ignore them, to flatten us out, to say that race doesn't matter, is to try to ignore a very deep and long-lasting history that continues to profoundly shape all of our social relationships. So it's important for us to think about the differences between race. We can't ignore those differences and nor can we flatten them out. You know, we can't. And I, I think we you see that also in the, in the ways in which I think people have challenged the use of the term people of color. Now people use like black indigenous people of color, which honestly just doesn't work for me either. Uh, and, and that could be another conversation as to why I believe that. Uh, but, but it's, it's you know it's a recognition though that like black, indigenous uh it's not the same as the experiences of Asian Americans or Latinx people. But even within those designations, there's so much difference as well. And there's a lot of difference, too, I think, between like African Americans as well as like new immigrants from African countries or from the Caribbean. I think those experiences are actually quite profoundly different as well. And and so We have to recognize the differences that divide us and and to take those differences seriously, to take that history seriously, right? But having done that, where does that leave us? What kind of possibilities for, uh, for social interaction, for community building, for a shared purpose can we form after we acknowledge those differences? And I think that's a re- that's a really important and challenging question because in some ways, those divisions can work to support the status quo or exacerbate some of the problems we see in the status quo. Um, it, it, and prevents, uh, I think what's really necessary is forms of solidarity to form where people who, despite their differences, nevertheless see common cause and find ways of working together to, um, to effectively address issues that affect their communities. So, you know, th- this is a really tricky situation we find ourselves in where we need uh, both to acknowledge what keeps us apart Keep that in mind. Don't dismiss that. And at the same time, try to find ways to pull together and work together for common causes.
1: Yeah. Thank you. So, so, Min, we've taken up a lot of your time. And I have just one last question. What are you working on next?
0: So... As I said at the start, uh, I, just, uh, I just started a term as the chair of my department, which uh, is a lot of work, I have to say. Everything you've heard about that kind of administrative role is true. It's a lot of work, and it's very time-consuming. Uh, one of the reasons that I have to say that I, I took on the, the chairship is, is because I think, actually, it's really important work it's it's often this kind of service work is often so dismissed in academia maybe in other kinds of professions as well and it's yet it's so important you know because this is this is really the kind of practical working out of some of the abstract ideas i was thinking about in the book you know how do you how do you build structures equitable structures uh, that advance common causes right while acknowledging our differences just on a kind of basic everyday level, and 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 you know this this just being an administrative leader, problem solving, trying to figure out how how to like make a better, more inclusive department to continue the work that others have done, done and necessarily understanding that it's a collaborative project, right? Especially being a chair, it's really interesting because you're elected to the position, and in many ways you serve. At the will of the faculty who elected you, and and let me tell you, uh, you as a chair of a department, you cannot um, impose anything on anyone. You know, <laughs> their faculty will just tell you to, will just refuse if if they don't agree with what you're doing. So you really have to work collaboratively and through consensus, and really find ways of uh, of organizing yourself, say for. You know, because you are all invested in, in the same kind of goals, or or at least similar enough goals that you can work together. Uh, and 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 how to how to do that, I think, and how to build institutions through collaborative work. It's just the for me, the kind of practical application of some of the theoretical issues I'm working that I'm really interested in. So that's one of the reasons why I'm being chair. Though the the dangers of having done that is that it really will. Prevent me from uh, from writing a lot because I just don't have as much time as I used to to write. Though I, I have been fortunate uh, after I finished writing climate lyricism, I, I went through a kind of dry spell and I, I had a real hard time writing. And I didn't I don't know exactly why that was the case, but um, and and actually I had to pull out of a couple of commitments or at least one commitment. Uh, yeah, actually, a couple of commitments. and uh, I felt really bad about one because I promised to give them an article, and I just, I just for the life of me, could not write it. Uh, uh, but I, but people have been pretty great in understanding and understanding. Uh, and I did get asked uh, to do some other projects, and, and so I wrote a couple of pieces over the spring that will come out in the fall. One is a response to a special issue on refugees and migration that's going to appear in American Literary History. And and then another is an essay that's going to be part of a cluster of public facing essays on on the platform uh, post forty five contemporaries, which the theme is on like feeling stuck with climate action, and so that was a really great topic to write about, and and it was nice to be able to write again, and and that's given me some 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 sense that I can develop a writing project. And so one thing I'm really interested in trying to do, if I can muster, find the time, is to try to work on a, on a, uh, on a short uh, manuscript written for a broad audience that address a lot of the issues I talked about today and, and try to take the thinking a little bit further, but, but write it in a way that will be even more accessible for a public audience.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to, um, yeah, read what's coming. And it's nice to hear your thoughts on being or becoming chair because my former undergrad thesis advisor is about to become chair of her department too. So I've been thinking occasionally about it and it's funny to hear your side of it. Um, So yeah, thank you so much for joining me here today. (laughs) Thanks, Amin.
0: Thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Yeah.